0: Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome Monday morning show for you today, including that high seas emergency we saw off the BC coast this weekend, that massive container ship hit by some bad weather, 40 containers dumped into the ocean and then a chemical fire on board. Canadian Coast Guard and other vessels responded. That fire now under control. But lots of questions about this incident. we got some great guests coming up on that. Also, the movie set shooting involving that loaded prop gun and actor Alec Baldwin. Lots of questions being asked about this incident too including right here in british columbia where we have a large tv and movie sector and we'll talk about safety on movie sets today so we've got all that and lots more for you today but first we start with a quick update on your weather right now the latest on the bomb cyclone check in with mark madriga chief meteorologist global hey mark mike how are you today <laughs> I'm, good, to, I'm good do, to hear you I'm, I'm, I'm doing good mark and when you were on the other day and we talked about this bomb cyclone i thought you pretty much okay. nailed it you said like okay we're gonna have some high winds but it's not gonna be you know crazy right
1: yeah well that was the first one that was the one that was offshore and moved up toward haida Gwaii. yeah that was when did we chat thursday i think yeah uh and it it was fairly low impact for us as we knew it would be it moved up to haida Gwaii, 120 130 kilometer an hour winds that one moved away, and then this next one blasted in. And uh, yeah, a, a bomb, meteorologically speaking, is when the central air pressure uh, drops 24 millibars or more in 24 hours. This one that came in on the weekend and parked itself well off the coast dropped, oh, 45, 50 millibars. Ridiculous. So, in other words, it intensified rapidly on the weekend. And boy, the Twitter, I mostly just follow Twitter, and it was just lit up like a Christmas tree with all the weather keeners showing the satellite imagery. It was an amazing-looking storm. But it stayed well offshore, Mike, which was great because... yeah that's the key and we knew it was going to develop and then start to weaken as it moved closer to the bc coast there was no doubt about that but still there is enough left with it even though it's much weaker now as it curves toward the northern tip of vancouver island i'm talking about the exact center of the low uh by tonight uh there's still enough with it that winds will be significant up and down the coast uh, from the southeast so they're blowing from southeast to northwest and Pretty consistently for Metro Vancouver, near the water especially, with 50 to 70 kilometer an hour gusts through the day. That's what we're getting right now near the airport and to Wasson and and over the open Strait of Georgia. It's a little stronger than that up the northern Strait of Georgia and on the west side of Vancouver Island and especially the northern tip of the island. So windy today. Wind warnings are in effect. They're very marginal for Metro Vancouver. You'll definitely notice the wind. Damage won't be as much as with some storms, and power outages won't be as many, uh, because I've seen probably, I don't know, several dozen storms bigger than this locally. But this is enough to generate the wind, as I say, and uh, some impacts. Uh, And again, it'll be now through early evening. Wind will ease later tonight, Mike.
0: Okay, Mark, thank you for that update. My pleasure. Okay, that's Mark Madriga there, Chief Meteorologist, Global BC, with the latest on the weather for you. So you heard him say there's some high winds uh, continuing through the day, but then uh, calming down a little later. Thank you for that update, Mark. All right, let's kick the show off today with the announcement last, late last week uh, that the Canada Recovery Benefit, the CRB, has officially ended. You might recall that federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh in a meeting with justin trudeau had called on trudeau do not cancel this program there are still a lot of people out there struggling the program has been wound down anyway let's check in with peter julian now ndp mp new west burnaby hi peter mike good to be with you again thanks a lot for coming on. what do you think about the decision to shut this program down i mean we got some new programs coming in but the crb that's gone now it's over it's it's done
2: well, it's callous and cruel because there is no replacement program. Uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau talked in his uh, press conference about this so-called lockdown benefit, but there's not a single region in the country, despite the fact that we have rising COVID cases in Atlantic Canada, in the territories, as you know, that not a single region that qualifies. So basically, 888,000 Canadians uh mainly self-employed but also from the arts and culture sector travel and tourism uh, they get cut off arbitrarily with 48 hours notice on a saturday night there is no longer any any supports for them to put food on the table or to keep a roof over their head and it's absolutely callous cruel and reprehensible
0: right so this pro- this program that they've brought in in its place called the canadian or the uh the lockdown the okay let me get this right canadian worker lockdown benefit a much more narrow eligibility criteria. Basically, it's workers who are living under a government-imposed lockdown. And so you're saying, like, nobody would qualify for that right now? No, no regions qualify. So it's so oh. narrow,
2: zero people qualify. And and that means it, it's it's more liberal spin than anything else. The, the other thing, of course, Mike, is that Mr. Trudeau, despite saying that we needed to have a, a national election, $600 million, because there were so so many urgent decisions to make, has delayed, uh, Mr. Trudeau's delayed Parliament coming back for over two months since the election date. So we're we're supposed to sit on November 22nd, which means no legislation can be brought forward until then anyhow. So his announcement of a so-called new program uh, doesn't have any follow-up until the end of November. So uh, until that time, nobody will even know what what, uh, type of program could even be put into place. So it's, it's irresponsible, and it's in a clear contradiction to, to what Mr. Trudeau said during the election campaign. You know, we've got Canadians' backs. So we're going to make sure people are taken care of. 880,000 880, families have been cast, cast adrift uh, because of Mr. Trudeau's uh, decision uh, last week.
0: Speaking to NDP MP, Peter Julian, at some point, though, Peter, do we not have to wind these programs down? I mean, the, the government said up front, these programs are temporary to give, get us through the worst of COVID. You know, at some, I've heard from a lot of employers out there who say that they're having trouble getting people to actually come to work, and they blame programs like the CRB. People would prefer to stay at home and, and collect government government benefits instead of going back to work.
2: Now, the labor market problems that we have, I, I, I talked to a lot of small businesses, and as you know, I... I ran a social enterprise before I was elected to Parliament. Labour market issues are tied to lack of housing affordability and the fact that uh, so many young people can't actually go on to post-secondary studies without having tens of thousands of dollars of debt. So it's kind of a a non-sequitur to to raise the labour market issues. The fact is these are self-employed people often involved in travel and tourism, which continues to have a massive downturn and including the arts and culture sector as well. We we will take some time before we climb out of COVID. We still have uh, regions of this country where the number of cases are growing. And there's no transition plan. Mr. Trudeau announced this last week, gave 48 hours notice, has no transition plan in place. And that means that the food bank lineups that we've seen that have already grown considerably over the last year and a half will continue to grow. And it does mean that families will be... Rendered homeless, because they simply can't pay okay. their rent. It, it, so these, these are major consequences. It, it takes a thoughtful approach. This is not a thoughtful approach.
0: Okay, what is the NDP going to do about this now? This is another minority parliament. You do have some power there holding the government to account. And uh, uh, just Jagmeet, Jagmeet Singh last week had a meeting with Trudeau, and he emerged from that meeting and said that he put this squarely on the table, that it was his number one ask of Trudeau was to continue that CRB program. So then Trudeau turned around and cut the program anyway. So what are you guys going to do about it? I mean, can you, you know, you've got some, you've got some leverage over this government right now. It's a minority parliament. Well,
2: we'll, we'll fight once parliament reconvenes, and we, we, we believe parliament should be working immediately. Once parliament reconvenes, we'll do what we have done throughout this pandemic. We, we improved so many programs and, and really pushed to establish programs that weren't that uh, weren't contemplated by the government, whether we were talking about supports for students and seniors, uh, the, the sick leave benefit, uh, the rent subsidy and the wage subsidy, these were things that Jagmeet Singh pushed as, as well. In every case, we managed to, to leverage a minority parliament to push things through. And, of course, when parliament reconvenes, we'll be doing the same thing and, uh, and uh, taking legislation and fighting to improve it. Uh, the, this, uh, the, the issue of cutting off the CRB, uh, obviously the Liberals and Conservatives, eye to eye on this they have the same orientation uh but the, the reality is there are so many people that are going to suffer because of this this rapid uh cancellation of a program with uh, 48 hours notice and the NDP is going to fight for those people uh now but especially once parliament finally reconvenes on november 22nd
0: okay thank you for coming on appreciate it oh,
2: always a pleasure thanks so much mike uh-huh.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that emergency on board, a large container ship in the Strait of Juan de Fuca on the weekend. Now, the MV Zim Kingston fully loaded container ship hit some bad weather. Uh, dumped approximately 40 containers into the ocean, and then an on-board fire. Now, have a listen to this. This is the radio call from the ship, the Zim Kingston here, and you're going to hear someone on the ship here asking for help to control a fire. you got the Victoria Coast Guard station on the other end of the line here. Have a listen. Victoria Coast
3: Guard, Zim
2: Kingston. We require assistance with the extinguishing of fire. I repeat, uh, require assistance with the extinguishing of fire. Over.
0: Roger. Okay, and then very fortunate that ships were able to respond to this emergency. The fire appears to be contained now. Let's discuss now with my guest, Sal Mercogliano. He's a professor of maritime history at Campbell University in North Carolina, and he's one of North America's top experts. I'm pleased to welcome him, Sal. Thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you for the invite. Um, when I was following this story on the weekend, I was very fortunate to come across your, your YouTube page on uh, what's going on with shipping. And I was able to watch your coverage on the weekend here. And I thought it was, it was excellent. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this incident, Sal, as you understand it here. You get this ship en route to Vancouver and then it gets into trouble. What are your thoughts on what unfolded there?
4: Well, it's obvious that the ship ran into high weather, the bomb cyclone that's right now off the coast of British Columbia in the state of Washington. Uh, A low-pressure area creates a lot of waves. And one of the things we've been seeing recently, particularly last year, is a lot of container ships have been suffering losses of containers due to high winds and waves. This ship, in particular, had three of the stacks of containers collapse. And the material within those containers are designed to be, you know, basically oriented a certain way. And once the containers went over the side or or collapsed onto the vessel, that's when you had the hazardous material spill that eventually resulted in a fire. And fire is the most dangerous thing on board any vessel at sea or at the dock.
0: Right, so when you have uh, some containers go overboard like this, like 40 containers into the ocean, does that affect the, the sort of the balance on board and, and, and start some of these other containers moving on board the ship? Is that what ha- happens?
4: It can. The way these, these vessels are designed, they have what they call cells, and so they are different rows in them. And what we saw in this vessel is three of those rows, uh, the one uh, row four, which is really forward on the vessel, one just forward of the house of the vessel and one just after the house of the vessel all suffered these uh, collapses. So it's probably more than 40 containers just looking at the numbers here involved. But again, you know, these containers, you have to remember these containers are packed and stowed on land by people who don't always think about the fact that these containers are going to be on a ship, they're going to experience rocking motions, and most importantly, when they collapse and you have these losses. These containers can go 90 degrees and, and very few things, you know, take your office and stick it on its side. You know, what yeah. what happens to your all your furniture and everything in there? That's what happens inside these containers.
0: Okay, Sal, let's talk about this fire here now and the investigation is still underway about how this started. But, I mean, if you've got a bunch of containers with hazardous material, you lose some containers, maybe some containers now. There's stuff sloshing around, stuff is moving. When you have hazardous material, if one of them leaks... Can that start a fire? Because I was, I was watching on your, your YouTube channel comparing this to an earlier incident. Was it in Sri Lanka there, where there was a similar – it appears there was a similar fire?
4: Yeah, there was a vessel, the Express Pearl, that uh, had a hazardous material leak. Material within the containers started leaking. Right. And they went to countries, Oman and India, and asked to come in to offload, and they were refused. And in a very similar situation, they arrived off the coast of Sri Lanka. Ship had a fire. They extinguished it, but then it reignited. And I think that's really the big danger right now with Zim Kingston. Even though we're seeing Canadian Coast Guard, and fortunately there were two Maersk offshore uh, support vessels that are involved in ocean cleanup were available there to provide fire suppression. It's really important to bring this vessel, it sounds strange, but to bring this vessel into port now because there may be fire smoldering in these individual containers or below deck. And what you don't want to have is a catastrophic loss of the vessel.
0: Right, and we also heard on the weekend that when you have a a chemical fire, potentially it's not a good idea to dump water on it, right? Like that will not put the fire out in some cases, is that right?
4: It depends on the material. I think the initial perception of this material was a derivative of potassium, but it's not. It's actually a, a different style of material, and so it's why it's very important to communicate between the crew and the shippers to know what's in these containers because there's so many different types of materials out there. Some can react very poorly with water. Some can react fine with water. And what we found out was this material actually was not an issue with water, so that's why these Maersk ships were able to get on board. I think it was also very interesting that the Canadian Coast Guard asked this crew to abandon ship because that is is a last-ditch effort that really should not be done unless... You know, the vessel is in an extremis and the crew is at a great deal of risk. You lose a lot of capabilities if the vessel is abandoned.
0: Speaking of Sal Mercogliano, he's a professor at Campbell University in North Carolina. He's a maritime historian. Yeah, there's been a lot of comment here about the Canadian Coast Guard saying well, we wanted everyone off the ship the captain, everybody. And it sounds like maybe the, the captain decided to keep some of his people on board. Is that your understanding?
4: He did. He refused to abandon ship, and there's really two reasons for that. Number one, there's a salvage issue, that if he abandons the vessel, then the vessel is open for salvage, and that opens the vessel for all these kind of long-term issues in terms of insurance. But the second issue, which I think is most important, is if you keep the crew on board, you can maintain a couple of things. You can maintain propulsion. So, for example, you can maneuver this vessel so that the wind isn't going down the length of the vessel, but it's going along the sideways across the vessel, that prevents the fire lapping over to other containers. The other issue is if you start spraying water on this vessel, the water is going to start filling up the vessel. You have every gallon of water you put on a ship, you have to get off or else you're sinking. And so you can run pumps. And so, you know, maintaining a smaller crew, which I think is the smart move, which the captain did, was the, 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 the best choice of action for him to undertake.
0: Right. I guess the Canadian Coast Guard was thinking about the safety of the crew, the potential for a, an out-of-control chemical fire. Maybe, it, who knows, an expl- maybe they're worried about an explosion. Who knows what their concerns were, but I'm sure it was, they were probably thinking about loss of life or just protecting the people on board, right?
4: Oh, I, I'm 100% sure that's exactly what they were thinking. They were very yeah. worried when, when the ship's at anchor, it will tend to go into the breeze, so all that smelt, the smoke, the pollutants will come back down onto the living quarters. But again, you know, coordination between the ship's crew and the firefighting units is essential. And and when you take the crew off, you lose certain capabilities of the ship that I think are absolutely vital to suppress this fire and to save the vessel. What you don't want is this turning into a ship like the Express Pearl, which was eventually consumed by the fire, sunk off the coast of Sri Lanka, and now you have an environmental disaster in that area you don't want that in the area off of victoria obviously
0: no certainly not and there's now a salvage operation we reported 40 containers overboard you think maybe more than that what what are the next steps there can they recover those containers typically
4: well it's very difficult to get those containers up out of the water Uh, usually what they'll wind up doing is sinking them because they are a hazard to navigation Uh, you can run into them uh, you can you know, basically damage your vessel. Robert Redford learned this in a movie. Uh, you can basically have some, some issues here with this. Uh, but the issue we're seeing, again, last year was the worst year we experienced with loss of containers on board. And with, right now, the massive vessels off the west coast of the United States, off Canada right now, with so many vessels traveling, we really need to take a moment and, and think about are we routing these vessels the safest course, are they being loaded too quickly, too too fast? And right now, the same uh, bomb cyclone that hit this vessel could conceivably head down the w- uh, west coast of the United States toward the 80 plus ships that are at anchor and drifting off of L.A. and Long Beach.
0: Sal, so last question for you: There, we hear a lot about the supply chain issues around the world right now. That ships are backed up, trying to get into ports. Is there pressure? on these captains of these ships to make their deadlines to get into port when they have an opportunity? And is, is there a temptation maybe uh, to take some unnecessary risks in order to accomplish that?
4: I think that's a, a subject that needs to be looked at with this vessel. This vessel was supposed to be in Vancouver on October 20th, and she did not arrive until the 22nd. So she was already behind schedule. And when ships are behind schedules, especially with the tight schedules today, you could lose your dock berth, that means your, your vessel is susceptible for fees and late charges, and captains who work for companies have to make sure they're making profit for their companies. And so captains are always between the devil and the deep blue sea. Do they keep their company happy, or do they have to worry about the safety and security of their vessel? And at times, captains will defer to one versus the other. And in this case, we may have seen a vessel that got too close to this bomb cyclone High winds lost their containers and now resulting in a ship fire off the coast of Victoria.
0: Okay, we continue to follow it very closely. Thanks a lot for your expertise today. I really appreciate it. Happy. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the story that the whole world does seem to be talking about on the weekend. It was that fatal shooting on a New Mexico movie set involving actor Alec Baldwin, the director of photography there tragically killed when a prop gun went off during a rehearsal another person injured in this incident alec baldwin now has issued a statement saying he is devastated by this he is cooperating with police an investigation is underway and a lot of details emerging now about problems on this set including the camera crew reportedly walking off at one point over safety concerns. So there are so many unanswered questions here, including primarily how could this possibly happen? Let's discuss now with my guest, Dean Goodein. Uh, Dean is a property master. He works with props on TV and movie sets. And he's been doing it a long time. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dean, thank you for coming on today.
3: Thank you, Mike. I wish it was under different circumstances, but uh, this is here we are.
0: Yes, I understand that, and I, I know I know people who work in the TV and movie business, and it doesn't matter if this happened a, a long ways away. Something like this is uh, just touches everyone who works in this business. So, uh, I, I know I know how I, I likely how you and your colleagues are feeling about this. Let me, Let me ask you quickly about your own your own expertise and background as a, as a prop master. Can you describe what that is?
3: A prop master is responsible for anything an actor moves uh, on a set, so everything from eyeglasses to food to books to maps. If an actor interacts with something on a set, it is a prop. That takes us into weapons as well. Swords, knives, uh in the case of, of a Western, all the firearms fall under our our guidance as a department.
0: Right. So you've worked with these prop guns yourself in the past, I imagine.
3: Yeah, my background, not to sort of, I'll just give you a quick Coles Notes version, is uh, sure. I've worked on the Western Unforgiven. I've worked, wow. I was a property master on Open Range with Kevin Costner. I wow. did the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I've also done Passchendaele, which was a heavy battle show. And also I worked with uh, great prop master, Jimmy Chow, on a movie called Legends of the Fall, which had yeah, a lot boy. of gunfire with the World War One battle sequence. So I... I've been around for 36 years now.
0: Wow, those, those are some incredible movies that you just mentioned there. What is a prop gun? Can you define that? What is it?
3: That's a misnomer in the press. Uh, the reality is that on a Western, all firearms are real. For the most part, I rarely do we have anything that you would, would not be able to fire a live round through. That being said, there's never a live round on a movie set ever. That's an international rule. That's not just Canada. That's everywhere. We, for 35 years, 36 years, there's never been a live round on a movie set. Everything is blank fire, or we use what is known as a dummy bullet, which if you see a sequence in a movie where somebody's loading a bullet into a gun, that is a dummy round. It looks like it's real, but the reality is there's no powder inside. The primers are made in there. We put a little marble in there so you can rattle it by somebody's ear, the actor's ear, the camera department's ear, so they know that if we're loading this bullet into the gun, it's completely safe. So the term prop gun is not correct. What happens with uh, police shows, modern police shows, where you have M4s or Glocks, those weapons are registered as movie firearms because they've been converted to fire blanks only by putting in what is called a constrictor in the barrel, which allows the air pressure to have the weapon cycle so that your blank cartridges can extract out the side. Um, But yeah, the term prop gun makes everybody think that we have some special gun we build for movies, but in reality they're real.
0: Guns. Right. Right. So they're real guns but they would be loaded with a a blank cartridge and like you said like an actual bullet an actual live round of ammunition would would never be anywhere near a, a film set. Is that the rule?
3: That is the rule. You know, yeah. even when we take actors to a shooting range to train them in prep, we never use the movie guns. We right. never mix our movie guns in with our our blank firing guns. So if I if I took uh, if I took Brad Pitt to a shooting range to shoot a, a Colt, I would have another Colt. I wouldn't take the movie Colt because we just are—we uh, are so safety-oriented that the industry collectively is gutted by this. We're just—we're shocked. Yeah. I am because of all the technology we have at hand now. Everything we know that this happened is just is shocking. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely tragic. And speaking to Dean Goodine, Dean is a veteran film and TV prop master. Uh, Dean, a lot of uh, reports are emerging about what happened on this movie set. And one of the things that's been reported is that when Alec Baldwin was handed this gun by an assistant director, the assistant director, it's been reported, shouted out the words, cold gun, cold gun indicating that, what does that mean on a movie set? That means the gun's not loaded, is that right?
3: Correct. A cold gun means that there's no blanks, there's no, n- nothing that could fire out of it. But the fact that if the reports are true, and it's a police report that, that has said this, the fact that the first assistant director even touched that, that gun was completely wrong. That is a complete fail in the whole systems that we've had in place for as long as I've done movies. The only people who are allowed to touch a firearm on a set are the prop master, the armorer, or people in the prop department that are charged with certain people who are firing weapons in scene, or additional armorers. There is a distinction between prop master and armorer, and you can feel free to ask me that in a minute. But the, f- the chain of how that weapon gets to the actor's hand, it goes through about five checks. It leaves the vault in the prop truck. It's immediately checked by the prop master or the armor to ensure that it is in good working order. There is nothing loaded in, in the firearm. We then take it to the set. We, if it's not needed right away, we lock it in our set cart until it's required. Once we pull it out of the set cart, even though we inspected it in the truck, we, still, we inspect it again. And then when we go into the set, we go to the first assistant director, who actually is charged to be the safety officer on the set. But as I've seen in the speed the industry has accelerated in training people, some people really are woefully unprepared for their jobs. We show the first AD, this weapon is safe. Then we turn to the camera crew and anybody who's on that set. And if it's a Western revolver and we've loaded six dummy bullets into it, so that, because with a Western revolver, if you are pointing it, you need to see that there 's bullets in the chamber of the cylinder, so we have dummy bullets, and we click them off, we click off all six I even do I do it seven times, I go through the cycle seven times. everybody knows there is no way this weapon can fire once that is established then once the actor comes in, I do it again. I show, I, I clip that weapon off probably 24, if it has six dummy bullets in it, it gets clicked off 24 times before it ever gets put in an actor's hand in the cycle no. of events getting it to the set. And no weapon is left on a table unattended. No AD comes to a weapons table and picks up a firearm and walks into the set with it. There is always somebody, all, there is always a prop master an assistant prop master an armor or an armor assistant with eyes on that weapon the entire time it is at a the vault. At no time is that weapon if it's exposed to light, i. e. it's not in a vault, it's not in a lockbox on the set, there is no time that weapon is not in the eye line of a prop person right. or an armor.
0: Right. So so given the what you just described there. This is a red flag for you in some of these reports and court documents that this assistant assistant director uh, reportedly handed this gun to Alec Baldwin. Like that sets off alarm bells for you right there.
3: Yeah, that well, that should never have happened, and and it also takes it back a few steps as to who are the people that were charged with bringing these weapons to the set and then having that weapon go from the vault to the prop table to having possible live round. We'll wait for the really official report to being handed in to Alec Baldwin uh, by a first assistant director who never checked the weapon before he handed in and determined it was cold without actually going through all the safety measures. We have flashlights. We shine down barrels. I have T-rods I use in barrels of Western uh, revolvers so that people know there is nothing that can happen.
0: Speaking of Dean Goodine, he's a veteran prop master in uh, film and TV productions. Hey, Dean, like I, I imagine that the reason that movie and TV shows would would want to use a real a real gun loaded with a blank cartridge is is for the the realistic effect it would have on on screen. You'd you'd see the recoil of the gun and like a muzzle flash when the gun is fired, and this looks up really effective on screen. Is is there any way to not do that like can they can they not use like cgi now to to replicate that
3: we've been using cgi a lot in the last five years and what happens is if you get into a small set like that was a church or i'll use open range for an example we had a scene in a jail in a jail where people were pointing revolvers at each other and so you're in that tight proximity um and If we had to gunfire, if we had to shoot a shot, if I couldn't guarantee I could make people safe with a blank, I would say, let's just CGI this muzzle flash and move on. Because the requirements to fire a gun on set are, once we've established all the parameters and what the shots are, how many shots are going to be, the first thing I do, if I'm armoring the scene, I look around the room and I go, do you need to be here? Anybody who doesn't need to be in this set, leave and then i look to see where the firearm is going to be pointed and nobody is in the line of that firearm with with angles and I mean, you can create the ability to look like you're pointing directly at somebody with a camera cheat and you're aiming off we always aim off and if it, the camera crew are always the most vulnerable they're the ones i keep my eye on the most because you know the focus pullers before we had remote heads and everything, the focus puller always, always had to be on one side of the camera or the other pulling focus, and I'd always say, can you do this from the other side of the camera? Then what we do is we put up Lexan, we give everybody safety gear, we everybody who's in that room is, is safetied, and then once everybody is safetied, I know that's going to be two shots out of this revolver, I will make the weapon hot when everybody is ready and the camera rolls. And I don't hand the weapon in until the camera rolls. And once the camera's rolling, I do one more look to make sure that there's nothing. Nobody is in harm's way. And if nobody's in harm's way, I hand the weapon in and I say the weapon is hot. That's where the term cold gun comes from. A gun is either cold or it's hot or it's clear. So I hand in the hot weapon. We do the shot. Everybody freezes when we say cut. Nobody moves until I step in and take the weapon away from the actor And I clear it. I make sure that both blanks have fired off. There's nothing left in there that could go off. And then I tell everybody, weapon is clear. Everybody can take their safety gear down, and we can set for the next shot. It's a dance. It's a process. It's a consistent process. It's been a consistent process since 1986 when I started. This process has never failed. The Brandon Lee incident in 1993 even made it stronger because pre-1993, what would happen to prop masters like me is we would get pressure from producers. I'd say, I want to bring an armor in for for uh, the gunshot that we're going to do tomorrow. And they go, well, you're licensed, you're a prop master, you can do it. And I go, yeah, I can, but we're also doing a food scene and a crowd scene and all the stuff. I want somebody whose job is only the firearm. And after Brandon Lee was killed, armors, I, I use armors a lot. I have no ego. I can do my own armoring. On a lot of shows right but i want somebody whose job is the firearm that's your job that's your only job and then i can focus on the hundred other things i have to do as a prop master and okay
0: yeah dean you've described some very extensive safety measures i'm, I'm really impressed with the, the routines you've described obviously something went tragically wrong on, on the set of this movie i know the film and tv Community in BC is like a family, and that you're grieving over this incident. I want to thank you very much for coming on today to talk about it.
3: Thank you, Mike. I, I'm, uh, yeah, our hearts are broken, but we'll, we will do everything we can in our power to make sure this never happens again.